All right, Matthew chapter 4 is where we're at. Um, Almost 11 years ago, uh, this church uh, was able to acquire a a public space, um, actually behind us right here in the strip mall. Uh, That place was a ghost town at the time. Uh, they would take anybody, and so they even they took us this new church startup called the door and uh and we went in there and uh, there was a lot of work to be done to get this place ready and I remember me and my wife being in there one night late painting or something and uh in walked this this tall blonde gal and uh we shook hands and introduced each other and and she was asking for prayer for her husband who was strung out on drugs and had no way out. And the marriage was done. And uh, it seemed like this guy was done. And, um, and we, she stayed for a couple hours as we talked and um, cried and prayed. And, and Derek is that man. Uh, God said yes to those prayers um, that day. He hears. I just want to make sure we all understand that, that he does hear when, when, when we talk to our dad. He never takes a day off. He, he never um, is too busy uh, to take time with us. Um, his answers are a different thing, right? Because I think all of us have people in our lives that we've been praying for and praying for and praying for. And it's easy, like Trisha, it's easy to get mad at God and go like, what are you doing? Like, what can be more important than what I'm asking you here? And I know because I have one of those kids at home. Um, but it's just a reminder of the testimony of our father, and the goodness of our Father, and the faithfulness of our Father, all things in His time. He knows what He's doing, and He cares, and He's near. And I want to make sure that we all know that, especially when I look at you, brother. Like that, I know that. It's a reminder um, of who He is, what He's done, and what He's capable of. Because I remember your wife leaving that night, and I thought inside of myself, it's an impossibility that this guy's... That, you know what I mean? Like I doubted everything that I was so confidently praying for. I, I, you know what I mean? Like, I know what to say. My theology's right, but I'm like, yeah, this ain't going to happen. He's sitting here. He's sitting here, right? That's the God we serve. And that's the God that we're going to look at now as we go to our Word. So, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, we're going to take the, uh, the two closing sections from verse 18 to the end. Uh, you know what that means, that things are going to get crazy after this. Because the Sermon on the Mount's what comes next, and we're going to downshift like quite a few gears. Uh, we've been moving pretty good, clipping along at a pretty good pace. Not after this. Um, we're we're going to be um, slowing down and, and just breathing this all in. Uh, but uh, we're going to go ahead and, and close out four. And it's kind of two different sections. It almost seems like it's two different sermons. And, and I'll just be honest. We're going to go ahead and take verse eight, uh, 18 through 22, and we're going to spend quite a few Quite a, quite a bit of time, the, the majority of the sermon on this, and then and we'll close out with 23 through 25. So first, 18 through 22, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So 
what we have here in these verses, obviously, is, is Jesus calling his first disciples, not all 12 of them, but four of them, Peter, Andrews, uh, Andrew, James, and John. And uh, these guys all shared the same profession. Uh, they, they were fishermen. These guys were fishermen. Uh, fishing was their life. It was their livelihood. And, and because it was their life and their livelihood, this place where they fished was um, basically all that they had known. And uh, that place was a sea, which is actually a lake. Uh, I don't know why the Jews did this, but they called every body of water a sea. But that's okay. We'll give it to them. Uh, uh, called, it, it was called Galilee, and this was their home. The Sea of Galilee was, like I said, a lake. It's below sea level. It's about 13 miles long, 9 miles wide, uh, big enough to be a sea. Um, and it's called the Sea of Galilee because it was in the district or the area of Galilee. Um, this has gone by uh, a different name, or, or, or some argue a couple different names uh, in our Bibles. Joshua refers to this sea as the Sea of uh, Gennesaret, or, or Kinneret, comes from the Hebrew word Kinnor, which means harp. And if you open up the back of your Bible and you look at a drop-down map of that area at the time, the Sea of Galilee, sure enough, is shaped like a harp. That's what it looks like, and so that's kind of uh, where that, that original name came from. And this sea, this lake, was their lives. It was all that they knew. Now, when this narrative took place, Jesus was not completely new to these guys. I think if you just open up the book of Matthew and you read this, you're like, oh, this is like, this is really weird because Jesus was a total stranger to these guys when this took place. It's, it, he wasn't a, a total stranger. Like they totally knew about Jesus. Okay. The whole area, the whole region was buzzing at this point. Uh, about this this man, Jesus. They were already familiar with him. And actually, if you go to the Gospel of John, don't go there, uh, chapter 1, verses 35 through 42, uh, tells us uh, that, the, that these guys were actually buddies with Johnny B., with John, John the Baptist. That's his street name, Johnny B. And, um, and like they, they knew him, and they were actually with him when, when Jesus walked by at his baptism, and John makes the legendary statement, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. These guys were actually present for that. Um, pretty cool thing. So they, they, they were totally familiar with who Jesus was, but, but at this time, uh, in Matthew 4, uh, they were just four, even though they knew who he was, they were just four ordinary guys just existing to do their day job, which was to fish. Day in, day out. Week after week. But at this point in the text, we have Jesus coming to them personally and telling them to drop everything. And they did. They did. Now, uh, what I really want to do here is just make four observations out of this text, uh, this, this section right here, 18 through 22, having to do with what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. Okay. Number one, one who follows Jesus is, is a disciple of Jesus. Some of you were like, wow, well, no duh. You know, what a crazy statement. Just want to make sure we know that. Someone who follows, one who follows Jesus is, is a disciple of Jesus. Um, a disciple is one who follows behind or under or after uh, somebody, a person, actively. So a disciple is not something, and this is kind of the point, it's not something that one becomes after following a teacher for a period of time, it is not something you work towards uh, as you follow someone. A disciple is something you are once you begin to follow someone. From this point on, from this moment forward, these guys following Jesus were referred to as his disciples. 
from this moment forward. So this means that in all their immaturity and all their imperfection and all their ignorance and all their lack of understanding and lack of knowledge and lack of education and lack of experience, they were at that moment his disciples. They were his disciples. And, and I don't know about for you, this is, this is a, a neat thing for me. I, I find comfort in this, uh, especially on my bad days. Uh, I, I, I love that this is a, a reality. This is good news that Jesus takes us on. He takes us on right where we're at. That's where he takes us. That he doesn't wait till we clean ourselves up. That he, he doesn't wait till we get our act together. He, he doesn't wait till we become morally acceptable people before he lets us hang out with him and be his disciples he takes us where we are and says let's go and from that moment forward we are disciples of jesus we're his followers that he would even allow us to be associated with him in the state that he finds some of us is ridiculous to me even now to me i've been a christian for 30 years and i and i still look at myself and see just this huge deficit I see just rooms full of things that still need to be tapped and cleared out inside of me and inside of my heart. And I just think, how could you ever want anything to do with this? How could you ever allow me to be called a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus? But I am. He allows me to be associated with him, even though he's perfect and I'm not. And we see that with these guys here, too. Not only does he take us where we're at, but he also doesn't load us up with a bunch of hurdles that we have to overcome and tasks to complete before we're considered by him to be his disciples. Notice what he doesn't say to him. Things like, go take this class and then come back and see me, right? Go to this conference. It's really good. You're going to learn a lot and then come back and we'll talk about you being a disciple, right? Go to four years of seminary, and by the way, you'll be paying that loan off the rest of your life. And then come back, and then come back, and, and we'll talk and see about you being my disciple. Like he, there, there's none of these things that you and I need to do to clean ourselves up to be associated as his follower. This is just good news. This is a cool thing. These were just ordinary dudes. They fished. That's it. Nothing more. He simply says, follow me, and takes these guys where they're at. Follow me uh, is the challenge. Because what happens there, the growth and the sanctification and the maturity that happens, happens on the job. That's where it goes down. They're just going to crawl into his pocket for a few years and peek out for daylight every once in a while. You know what I'm saying? It's on-the-job training is, is how he, he does this. And, and they were his disciples from the get-go. Uh, by the way, because it doesn't fully come through in the English, that when Jesus comes to them and he says, follow me, he's not asking. He's telling. I know, I know you can't catch it there, but in the Greek, uh, follow me is an imperative. Almost like they have no choice. Like, you're coming with me. Let's go. He wasn't suggesting anything to them. Just thought that's an interesting thing to throw out. And of course we know as we get through the gospel, especially the gospel of John, especially John chapter 17, when Jesus goes to the Father before, uh, you know, on that fateful night uh, and prays the high priestly prayer. Who is he praying for? The first half of the prayer, he's praying for these guys that, that he would call as his disciples that God gave him out of the world, right? These, these dudes were handpicked. 
They were his. They were coming. <laughs> like they were, and then, and then Jesus will go on the second half of that prayer to pray for you and I, the ones who God will give him. It's a really cool thing. But I just want to make sure we all know that when he comes, he's not like, hey, I was just wondering, like, are you guys sick of this? Like, you want to try something new? Like, you want to come with me? No, he, he walks up and he's like, let's go. Let's go. Number two, in order to follow Jesus, you need to unfollow where you are. Well, I know this one sucks. This one's going to hurt. This one hurt me. It still hurts me to look at this one. In order to follow Jesus, you've got to unfollow where you are. You've got to leave. I just stated that it's a cool thing that Jesus takes us where we are without being polished and without having to accomplish any tasks to be his disciples. But there is one thing that is required to follow him, and that is that we need to leave where we are. These guys had to leave their nets, their boats, their shore to follow him. Everything they knew, right? I mean, let's let's go ahead and consider these guys for a moment because it's worth considering. Let's Let's consider the position... Uh, that these guys are in. Because when it says they left their nets, it might as well have said they left their lives. They left their lives. They left their livelihood. They left their security. They left everything that they lived for, everything that they knew, everything that was familiar, everything that was safe to them, they walked away from. They left their lives. And how long did it take them to do it? The word is immediately. Immediately, which means that there was no question there. There was no deliberation. They didn't do like a game of like rock, paper, scissors to see like what they what they like. Like there was no concern or worry. They immediately like in a moment. Walked away, they bailed, they jumped ship, like literally pun intended. Right. Furthermore, as if walking off the job isn't extreme enough, you have the added extreme with James and John of them walking away from their dad. They walk away from their father. Family. They, they, they like basically left dad holding the net. Like ho- holding the responsibility and holding the burden. And for who? For what? I mean, it, there's a good chance that these dudes were going to get the family business one day. You know what I'm saying? Like these dudes were probably up for dad like coming out of that and these guys coming into it and it would be like their lives. Like it already was, but it had been in a, in a more beneficial way. They walked away from it and they walked away from dad too. They left him holding the net. These men, you guys know the rest of the story, right? You guys know what happened to these guys, right? These guys would go on to live hard lives as a result of this decision they made right here. Do you get that? Do you know what kind of death these guys died? And it happened here. At this decision. To leave what was safe. And familiar. And somewhat predictable. Um, The world would pity a decision like this. Especially knowing how they lived. What it would cost them and how they would die. And you could even ask, like, was it a tragedy? I couldn't help but think. I don't know how many of you have heard this. If you haven't, go home and and listen to it afterward. You're welcome. Okay, John Piper has the famous clip back in the early 2000s 
just titled Seashells. Just put in John Piper and Seashells, and it will come up. And I highly recommend it, but I couldn't help, as I'm thinking of this this week, about um, this illustration that Piper used in this sermon one day as he's talking to thousands upon thousands of young people, of college students who are starting their life. They're starting their life, so they're about to make some big decisions as far as how this thing called life is going to go and how it's going to be lived out. And this illustration has come to be known as the illustration that transformed a generation. Because God spoke powerfully to these kids that day. right? And what it really challenges is the idea of nominal Christianity and um, the American dream. And I'm sorry, I don't want to ruin anything for any of you today. Because I know some of you are making plans right now. But I don't want us to miss what God really wants us to get. Right? And, and so if I was to like summarize this illustration, it is this. John was pastoring a church in the 80s. And there were these two ladies in his church that at 80 years old, their husbands have passed away. They're in their, the, the last chapter of their lives, right? They decide to pick up and to go to one of the worst places in the world that you can go. They were, they went to Cameroon. Things were really bad over there at the time to, uh, help the sick, right? To feed the poor and to preach Jesus in every bit of it. 80 years old. Okay. So this is not the beginning of their life. Like, they're not spring chickens. Like, this is the end of their life. This is not what people usually do at that time. And these two ladies from the congregation go over there and and they do this. And one day they got word that these two ladies, their car on the way to a village, like went off a cliff and they died. And the church is grieving as they hear the news, right? They're grieving and they're mourning about this. And he finally stops and he looks at his church and he says, was this a tragedy? Was this a tragedy? Because most people would say absolutely it was a tragedy. And then John would proceed to say, I want to read you something. Anyone remember? Of course, some of you do. Reader's Digest. Like my parents had these stacked up like on every table and probably the back of every toilet in my home growing up, like Reader's Digest. And on the back cover of the Reader's Digest would be a testimonial of a reader of some sort. And he asked this question to his congregation, is this a tragedy? And then he says, let me read you something. And it was the back cover of the, the latest Reader's, Reader's Digest that had showed up to him. He said, listen to this. The title is Start, New, Start Now, Retire Early. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida where they cruise on their 30-foot boat and play softball and collect seashells. That's a tragedy. That's what Piper says. That's a tragedy. It's the opposite. It's the complete inversion of the way that you and I view what this thing is here that we're doing right now. And I get it because I get caught up in it too. I want that too. I want to collect seashells in my golden years. Actually sounds rad. The tragedy is that people in this country are are spending billions and billions of dollars for you and I 
to buy that lie. And we have this Bible, which is the Christian's Reader's Digest, that is pleading with us and saying, don't buy it. Don't buy it. It's not that it's sinful in and of itself. But why are we here? He conjures up this idea of this, of this couple um, getting to heaven and standing before the God of the universe to give an account of their lives and what they did with it. And imagines that all there really is there, maybe even with pride, is, well, look at my shell collection, God. You know what I mean? Isn't it cool? Isn't it neat? Look at my 30-foot boat. Isn't that awesome? No. It is not a tragedy what happened to these two ladies. Because they poured out their lives for the sake of the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is why you and I truly exist here. I know there's going to be loss when I stand before God already. I know that he's going to be like, what'd you do, what'd you do with what I gave you? And, and it, like, I, I really believe that's what the tears are. It, it, like the end of the book of Revelation where he wipes away every tear. I think that's the only reason there's even tears in heaven is because of what goes on in that accounting room. The regret that we may have by what we did not do with what he gave us. It is not a tragedy to pour out your life as a living sacrifice for the one who poured out his life as a living sacrifice for us. It is a tragedy to act like it doesn't even matter when we say it does. You know what I'm saying? I know this is hard. This is hard for me too. The decision these guys made that day is a big one. All all that to say, it was a big one. And they would count the cost, and it would have repercussions that are big, and it is eternally worth every bit of it. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. To say that these guys, what these guys did that day was radical by just walking away from everything would be an understatement. By all rights, we could even say that the response was straight up crazy, irresponsible even, irresponsible even by human standards. And yet the text says immediately they left their nets. And as crazy as it looks, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like. We walk out on some stuff, you and I. We abandon some stuff, even some important stuff. And you know what? We're happy to do so if that salvation is real. These guys walked off the job that day. And, and yes, they would fish again. We're going we're gonna to see that. We're going to see some stories and, and some life with Jesus go on on fishing boats. That's really good stuff. But the, the, it was not no longer their primary concern. It wasn't what they were trusting in. All right? Following Jesus was after this moment. In contrast to what these guys did, I cannot help but to think of the rich young ruler, right? I don't know if that, can, that comes to mind, but like I can't, I can't help but think, think of this guy that the accounts found in Mark 10 as well as Luke 18. It's a man who had it together. He was very religious. He was very devout. He was a man who paid attention to Jesus and had a desire to follow Jesus, yet unfortunately, only on his terms. Only on his terms. Because when Jesus told him what it looked like to follow him, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. 
Jesus said, yeah, man, the only, the only thing you need to do is get, get rid of this one thing that keeps you here because you won't be needing it anymore, not with me, and let's go. Let's do this thing. And what's the text say? His response was, he went away from Jesus very sad because he was very rich. He, he couldn't do it. He couldn't leave where he was at. He couldn't unfollow that which he was following. And he was unable to do both. How many people does this describe? How many of us does this describe sometimes in our life? You know, yeah, Jesus, I, I, I want what you have to offer as long as it looks like this. As long as it doesn't look like this. As long as you don't take this thing from me. Right? I, I, I don't think this was probably the original intent of the author of, of Matthew here, but I can't help but to see the imagery we have in the statement, immediately they left their nets. Their nets to follow Him. That's what it looks like to, to follow Jesus. We leave our nets. We walk away from the things that have, we have been caught in all our lives to be all in with the giver of life. It's Jesus who said you cannot serve two masters. It's simply an impossibility. I've tried it. I've tried it for years as a Christian, right? I, I've tried to, to, to love Jesus with all my heart, mind, strength, life, energy, money. All that. And, and then at different times, something else will come up and it gets that same amount of like attention and, a, and affection. And, I, and, and, and when it starts, it's like, oh, this is cool. I can do this, right? Like I can, I can walk this line. Like it ain't a big deal. And every single time before long, one of them dies to me. They have to. There's no, there's no, there's no room in the fallen human heart. There's no capacity there for us to give an equal amount of allegiance to two things. We can't do it. One will win, one will lose. One will be cherished, one will be despised. It's just the way it works. I wish it didn't. I get mad at God for that one too. Why does it have to be like this? Why can't I love you and this thing too? I'm sure I'm the only one. The difference between the rich young ruler following Jesus or not did not come down to how much he did do. I want you to know that. It came down to the one thing he was unwilling to do, which was unfollow where he was, to follow where Jesus was going and taking him. That is number two. Number three. What does a disciple of Jesus learn to do? Well, th- this is really cool for these guys because they learn to fish. You know what I mean? Like, like, uh, that, like that's, that's kind of awesome because they're not going to have to give up fishing completely. You know what I mean? They still get to fish. It's just going to look a little different at this point. So they're, they're going to they're gonna learn to fish for something better. They're going to learn to fish for something more important. I, I don't know, Jesus, like, this is pretty important. Like, it pays my bills, you know? So, like, that's, that's a big deal. What can be more important than that? People. People. We, we live in one of the most coveted areas of the United States of America in the Northwest. Because of our recreation, because of what the outdoors offers us here, but also because of our fishing. We got some good fishing here. And there are adamant fishermen that come here. And I like fishing too. Like I'm a fan. I dig it. But it's purely 
recreational. But I, I, I think about, I, I think about the passion and, and the money and the, and the determination and the dedication and the commitment that so many fishermen put into recreational fishing. And then I think, gosh, what if we took, what if we just like bottled half of that and, and, and put it into fishing on land? You know what I mean? Put, putting into, to fishing out of water. Like, what would that look like? And what a shame that we don't. Jesus didn't call these guys away from fishing. He's just taking them to a new fishing hole. He's taking them to a new fishing hole. He's calling them from the water to the shore to fish for people. This is what a disciple of Jesus does. This is what we do if we follow Jesus. You know why? Because that's what He did. That's what He did. Again, followers of Jesus, ready? Go where Jesus goes. Do what Jesus does. Are about what Jesus is about. And this is what Jesus is about. He's not... He's not super interested about the beautiful 14-pounder that was caught up at Wikiup. He's more interested about the sinner that was caught at a Samaritan well one day. And you and I should be too. These guys are going to learn to love that kind of fishing. And my prayer is that we would too. Number four, you guys are like, we're going to be here all day, man. Um, a disciple of Jesus follows Jesus. You're like, you already said that. Like, I'm going to say it now with like a different emphasis. Okay? A disciple of Jesus follows Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. This means that he is the object. He is the one to follow. He is the centerpiece. He is the one that we are to have our crosshairs on. Not another man. Not your pastor. Not your mentor. Not the dude that baptized you. Or the church you got baptized in. Or the evangelistic movement. Not the person that said the sinner's prayer with you. Jesus. Jesus is the one we are to follow because pastors will come and go, and mentors will come and go, and evangelists will come and go, and evangelistic works will come and go. Churches will come and go. Churches will come and go. Right? Movements will come and go, but He will not. Some of you are following us going through the rise and fall of Mars Hill right now. I mean, this is what we're talking about. This stuff happens all the time. All the time. Where the success or the movement or the hope is is all determined on the, on the wrong thing, the wrong person. It happens all the time. It is Jesus who remains, and it is Jesus who remains perfect. Perfect. To be a disciple of Jesus is to follow Jesus regardless of what everybody else is doing. And you know what that means? It means that you and I have no excuse. That sounds negative, but I actually think it's positive. We have no excuse to follow behind him, to follow after him, full stop. 
right? Because it's not determined by other people. We have no excuse as to why we're not doing well with our walk with him, in our love towards others, in our service, or in our growth. And the reason I say this is because it's really easy for us to blame people, experiences, relationships around us, our leaders, our friends, our fellow congregants, our brothers and sisters in Christ, for why we're not doing what we should be doing as followers of Christ. We use excuses often. We can make ourselves out to be nothing more than victims because we base our ability to follow Jesus on others. And I would say, stop it. And that's for me too, because I do this. We need to stop it. It's easy to point at the one who's let us down or hurt us or disappointed us and say, this is why I'm not doing well in Christ. Or this is why I'm not pursuing Christ the way I should be right now in my life, or this is why I'm not attending a church anymore, or why I'm not in fellowship anymore, or why I'm not praying anymore, or why I'm not reading my Bible anymore, or doing anything anymore. You see the spiral? This is how it works. I don't even think I'm a Christian anymore because of what that dude did 25 years ago. What that church, that church experience that happened 10 years ago. If you are part of the church, and I don't mean outer circle, I mean inner circle. Okay, let me, let me say this. There's two, there's two different things. You've got the core, body, the people that are bought in, not just vocally, but with their lives and with their money and with their time to the local congregation. And then you've got everyone else that sits on the outside. And I get why. If you come to the inside, I don't care how awesome that church is. I don't care how well it's run. I don't care how many mature believers are there. If you come to the inside of a church, Schaefer calls it close contact Christianity. It's exactly what I'm talking about. You will get hurt. You will get disappointed. Someone will let you down. Because that's what happens when we get relationally close with each other. There's no way around it. And I'm not saying it's good or that I want it to happen, but it's part of the, it's an inevitability that if you actually buy in at all levels to your local fellowship, which we would hope and pray that all of you do because we need you and you need us, just know that it will not always be easy and it will be challenging and you will get hurt. It's not surprising when people go to a church and get hurt. It is unfortunate. It ain't something that's awesome. But it is something that will happen. Do not let that keep you outside the church. Do not let that keep you on the outer circle. Do not let that keep you from fully being known and knowing others in your congregation. We need each other. As painful as it is. But you know what? Families are painful. You know, Sometimes they're messy. Sometimes it doesn't look fantastic. But this really is a family on the inside, an eternal one. That's not always going to look like this, by the way, which is awesome news. <laughs> like it's, it's going it's to get an extreme makeover one day, and there, and there won't be that craziness going on, that weirdness going on, you know. But for now, there is. We just need to know that. It's an inevitability, okay? Man, every single one of them, man will fail you. Man will, I will fail you. Pastor Brent will fail you. Even Terry, I didn't think it'd be possible. Even Terry might fail you. Man will fail you, but Jesus will not. Man will blow it, but Jesus will not. 
Man will have bad days, but Jesus will not. Man will give you reasons why not to follow Jesus, but Jesus will not. You know what I'm saying? Jesus will not. And so we follow Jesus. If you are a disciple of Jesus, remember that it's because you follow. Come on, people. Thank you. Amen. And when you do, you will grow. You will be changed. You will overcome. You will persevere. You will remain. You will be comforted. You will be strengthened. You will be renewed. And you will be encouraged. When everything and everyone around you goes dark, He will not. He remains. Because He is the source of light and He is the perfect shepherd, teacher, preacher, mentor, master of men. And the more we become obsessed and immersed with Jesus, the more we will grow, love, forgive, persevere, and hope in all things. Do not place your hope, your allegiance on anybody but Christ. Ever. Alright, final section. This is going to be shorter. Promised you? This is, this is a shorter section. Verses 23 to the end. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. This is the greater, especially northern region and and, and, uh, northeastern region. And they they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those uh, oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. He healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. Decapolis is just two words in the Greek. Deca meaning ten. Polis meaning, this is cities. The, the ten cities. Okay? And from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Just to cut to the chase, this is a section of Scripture. A passage of Scripture that can be interpreted uh, basically a couple different ways depending on where the emphasis is placed. So here's the simplified breakdown of the two most common interpretations. You ready? If you come to Jesus, He will heal you physically. This is a great proof text for that. I mean, you can't deny what's going on. This is actually why His fame spread so far. is because what it is He's doing. He's healing everyone that's coming to him physically. So, so number one, uh, this could be teaching us that if you come to Jesus, uh, he will heal you physically, which is a reason to come to him. Or two, it could mean that the kingdom of God has come upon these people. If you're wondering, I believe number two is true. The kingdom of God has come upon these people. In other words, something really, really, really big is going on here. Something really big. So, so you could look at it and be like, it could mean that Jesus came to give us our best lives now, or it could mean that the king has arrived. He has arrived. Which means that Satan and his kingdom is in trouble. In trouble. The verses are telling us that the real power has showed up. The real authority has shown up. The Word has shown up. In Genesis chapter 1, we see Jesus speaking creation into existence. And in these verses here, we see Jesus coming into that which He created and speaking with authority over that which exists. It's what we have. And and when we talk of sickness and disease and pains and possession and seizures and all these things that are mentioned here, we're talking about things which you and I are powerless over. We're powerless, so we hate these things. Amen? That was weak. (laughs) We hate these things, but these are things that we are at the mercy of. Right? They're, They're things we cannot control. We cannot tell to go away. 
We cannot fix on our own. And what Jesus is publicly putting on display is that they're not things he cannot control. They are not things he cannot fix. And they are not things he cannot order around. They are not things he is powerless over, but rather powerful over. He's openly declaring that unlike us, he's not at the mercy of these things. They're at his. They're at his. That's pretty awesome. That's a bold statement. And really, that's what's happening here in this passage. What Jesus is doing by healing all of these people is he's making a power statement. And by making this power statement, he's authenticating everything else that he came to do and say. Bigger things, greater things than physical healing like spiritual healing. Like exercising the power to forgive sin. Our greatest ailment. Man's greatest problem. Right? Um, don't take my word for it. Did you know that Jesus actually tells us that this is how we're supposed to interpret this? Um, turn with me real quick, if you would, just because you guys need to be woken up for a second. Turn to Mark chapter 2 real quick. So one gospel over, chapter 2. Jesus actually tells us that this is the right way to interpret his physical healings. Right? This is probably one of these examples of what Matthew's actually talking about, you know, as everyone's coming to him and people are bringing people to him. There's no better example of that than these, these, these dudes bringing their buddy, the paralytic, to him, like on a mat. You know what I mean? Like, we got to get this dude before Jesus. And that's what it is. Mark chapter 2, verse 1, when he returned, that's Jesus, to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. They just took Jesus' house apart. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, you ready? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there and they're questioning in their hearts, why does this, why does this guy speak like that? He's blaspheming. You know why they said that? Because everybody knows that only God has the power to forgive sins. In fact, they acknowledge that. Next verse, who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 8, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Listen to this. Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I said, rise, take up your bed and walk. You guys understand what's being said here? Right? Like, what he's saying is, I, I have the power and the authority to forgive man his sin, which is the real reason, by the way, that I've come. But because you cannot see it, to accept it, I'll show you my power and authority by performing that which you can see. This is what he's doing. Physical healing. In other words, Jesus healed in the physical to display or authenticate his power and authority to heal spiritually that's why he did it now, you can look at somebody and say uh you can't you can't you, you you can look at somebody and say like that dude used to be lame like he wasn't walking like all his life and now he walks like what's up with that you know what i mean like that's something we can that makes a statement 
to everybody that cannot be denied. And then someone's like, how'd that happen? That's an impossibility. Well, this guy Jesus like, like did that, right? But you can't look at somebody and be like, oh yeah, their sins are forgiven. I wish you could. I wish we got like badges or something or like a, some kind of little laminate card or, um, like a, like a tattoo. Maybe of like a W on the forehead. You know what I mean? For wheat. You know, it would make our jobs a lot easier. It'd be nice to be able to look at people and be like, that person's had their sins forgiven. That person actually has not. You know what I mean? But, but we, we can't know that. And, the, and this is real, this is really what we're talking about here. That's why Jesus healed physically. Since you can't see what I'm doing at this level, I'm going to make sure you know I can by doing this on this level. Does that make sense? What does it all mean? What does it all mean? Don't say this out loud because if you're wrong, I don't want to embarrass you. Just answer this within yourself. What is the biggest, the greatest most talked about, especially by Jesus, topic or subject in the Bible. You ready? The kingdom. Were you expecting something more? There is nothing bigger. The, the kingdom is what he spent all his time. You're going to see it as we go through here. That's all he ever refers to and talks about the kingdom. Everything else seems to fall underneath that. It's all about the kingdom. Question number two, when does the kingdom arrive? Is it future? Because there's a lot of people that will say, well, this is just you know strictly a, a future thing. Or is it something that maybe has come? Or is it something that's here now? It's debated. It's controversial. I'm not going to lie to you. My answer is yes. It, it's, uh, it's future... And it's past. Uh, it's now and not yet. Right? Um, it's now and not yet. Uh, how do we know that it has come? If it has, how do we know that it has come? Well, because Jesus told us it did. And He told us what it would look like when it came. Listen to this. You don't need it. Well, if you want, you can turn there with me. But uh, I'm going to go to Luke 11 real quick and read you something. Okay? Listen carefully to what Jesus says here regarding what's actually going on when he heals this mute who just happened to also have a, a, a demon. So he's kind of like, it's like a two for one. Like he's casting out this demon and he's also like fixing this dude. All right. Um, and his ability to, you know, he's allowing him to speak. Luke uh, chapter 11. And this is a famous passage. You guys will know it as soon as I start uh, to, to go through it. Uh, now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon uh, that was mute uh, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Don't even come up and ask me a question about that afterward. I have no idea. I, I don't know what this is saying. Um, when you start getting into like actual physical ailments and stuff, being demon possession, like that's above my pay grade. Uh, it almost looks like that's what's being said. I'll just leave it there. You can, you can go have fun with it. Verse 15. But some of them said he casts out demons by bills above the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? 
For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? This is a good question. That's another thing to go look at. They, therefore, they will be your judges. Verse 20, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying it's come upon you. You see me doing this? Well, then that means this. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Right Now, Mark, when he records this, he adds this little extra to the end that I want to read to you real quick because it's extremely interesting. And it's in the form of a, a very small parable. Um, and, and, and so he, he records the same occurrence, but uh, he adds this, this little thing in Mark 3.27. He says, at the end of what I just read in Mark's account, he goes on to say this. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed... He may plunder his house. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that that which they see him do by healing physically and purging, exercising demons and casting them out is Satan's kingdom being overthrown by another one. It's being overthrown. He's saying you are witnessing me plundering Satan's house because a stronger man is here. That's what you and I should see when we see healings. When we see Jesus doing that ministry, that's what we're seeing. We're not seeing, oh, here's the reason to come to Jesus. We're seeing this is God. This is the King. This is the King. Right? When, when Jesus heals, it screams kingdom authority. It speaks to the authentication of Jesus as Messiah, God become flesh. And because this is true, because this is the takeaway of Jesus' healing power and ministry, our preaching is to be what his preaching was. Are you ready? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is actually verse 17 back in our Matthew section. I think Chad had this last week. But this is where his ended and where mine starts. This is what Christ proclaimed as he healed Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. If you and I are to fish for men, for people, I want you to know that this is the bait that goes on the hook. This is the bait that catches people. It always has, and it always will. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And just like I mentioned earlier, when Jesus said, follow me, that that's an imperative, it's a command, not a suggestion, so is repent. It is not a suggestion. We are not telling people it'd be really good if you, if you consider asking Jesus into your heart. No, I don't even know where that comes from. No, when, when we come to people, we are, we are pleading with them. We are imploring them out of love and fear for them. Repent. It's your only hope. There is nothing else. There's no one else coming. He's already come. Turn. Unfollow where you are and follow him. Or you're doomed. You must. It's a command. And this, this, brothers and sisters, takes a little bit of a load off of our shoulders because we're always trying to figure out what to say to people. You know what I mean? Uh, just say this. You need to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's your only hope. And mean it. It's your only hope. And if there's anyone here that hasn't known that up to this point, I would ask you right now to unfollow it, whatever it is, where you're at, whatever you're doing. I don't even care. Jesus doesn't. He knows what you've done. He knows where you are. And he's already, 
He's already let out blood for that. All right? So turn. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus come, when the king comes back, and he is coming back, and sometimes it seems like it's super fast that he's coming back, when he comes back, it's not going to be like the first time. You do not want to be found on the wrong side of him. You want to be found on the right side of him. And the difference between the two is whether you repent or not. And so I would command you, I would implore you, repent. And again, as you and I go out of here, we've, we've, we've gathered together now so that we can uh, get tightened up and have, uh, be challenged and have our, our, our faith stretched and um, be washed in the Word of God. But now we're going to scatter. And what are we? Like, what are we living for? What are we doing here? This is, what, this, this, is, this is the bait that needs to be on our hook. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And nothing is more important in this life than us carrying the feet, or being the feet that carry the gospel, I'm sorry of the glory of God to people that desperately, desperately, desperately need it. There are impossible people out there that are not impossible for God. That's what he said, by the way, at the end of a rich young ruler thing. Like, it's, it's a total downer, right? The rich young ruler walks away sad, and it's like, well, that dude's going to hell, right? And, and, and you're like, that was a bummer story. And then his disciples come, and they're like, well, if that just happened, like, like it's impossible for anyone. And he's like, no, nah, it is impossible with man, but with me, it ain't. I can save anybody. Like that guy sitting on that back table. Lord, thank you so much for uh, your word that never fails to expose the things that we, we really do need exposed, God. So, so thank you uh, for, for cutting uh, with, that, with that two-edged sword of your truth, which comforts us, God, and which encourages us as well as challenges us um, uh, to, to, to further follow Christ. And I, and I pray that we would have uh, that, that we wouldn't settle for just being nominal in our lives, in our faith, in our following, in any of it, God. I pray that it would bother us if we find ourselves being nominal with you. I pray that we would be extreme with you. I pray that we would be radical like these guys with you, that you would create that in us, God, and that we would go out and that by your grace um, would have some kind of eternal impact on this kingdom that we currently live in. And so we ask for your help, your lead, your strength, your wisdom, your guidance in all of that. And we thank you, God, for saving people like us and allowing us to be associated with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.